Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What is fascism and how can we fight it? In the 1930s, mass fascist movements smashed the workers' organisations in several countries in Europe. Today, far-right and right-wing populist forces are again growing in prominence. So what can we learn from history? What exactly is fascism? Is a fascist dictatorship possible today? And what distinguishes it from other authoritarian regimes? Do these political differences mean tactical differences in how workers should fight them? What's the difference between a popular front and a united front? And why do you have to be anti-capitalist to succeed as an anti-fascist? This episode of Socialism looks at fighting anti-worker reaction. Trotsky, Fascism and the United Front. This episode, as part of our series on Trotsky and Trotskyism, we'll be looking at the rise of fascism in Europe and how Leon Trotsky and his co-thinkers responded to that historic tragedy. We're here today with Sasha Stanicic, who is from the Sozialistische Organisation Solidarität, or SOL for short, that's the German section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Hello, Sasha. Hello, James. Thanks for the invitation. Did I pronounce all of that correctly? Very good, thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Sasha. So our first question then is the rise of the far right and right wing populist forces, and there's a distinction between those two, but the rise of the two over the last period has led to comparisons with the 1930s and the rise of fascism, especially the German variant of fascism, which is Nazism, at that time. Why is it useful for us to take a look at history? Well, I think there's a proverb which says, he who is not prepared to learn from history is doomed to repeat it. And of course, while history does never repeat itself in exactly the same way, I think the lessons of history are vital to live up to the challenges of the present and to prepare the future. And I think that the 1930s and the rise of fascism and the victory of Hitler and other fascist forces in Europe at the time are certainly a warning to the labor movement and to the working class as a whole, and they should never be forgotten. And it is one of our tasks as socialists to make sure that they are not forgotten. I think the Nazi dictatorship and fascism in that period showed how far capitalism is prepared to go in defense of its power and profits and to stop the working class from fighting for socialist change. And I think the 30s also show that under certain conditions, masses of people can be mobilized for a terrorist and racist movement like the Nazis were. Well, I think it's important to understand what these conditions were in order to prevent a similar development in the future. And having said that, we should also make sure that we do not take a formalistic view at history. It is true that some conditions today seem to be very similar to the 1930s, especially the deep economic crisis which is developing, the frustration of important layers of the population, of working class people, of middle class people, with established politics and capitalist institutions. But at the same time, there are important differences to the 30s. And generally speaking, I think there is no danger of a fascist regime taking power in Germany or anywhere in Europe in the foreseeable future. At the same time, this does not mean that the far right or right-wing populist forces are not a serious threat to the workers' movement. 
to the left, to migrants, to Jews. And obviously they have to be combated with any means necessary. And we as Socialist Organization Solidarity in Germany and the CWI internationally are an active part in the anti-racist and anti-fascist movements all over the world, participate in them, but we participate with a socialist program and socialist strategy. Now, Leon Trotsky was one of the first who warned of a fascist victory taking place in Germany, the possibility of that. Why is his view on fascism special and why is it relevant for today? I think that... Trotsky understood the developments at the time and the enormous threat the rise of the Nazis meant for the German and international working class earlier and better than anyone else. I mean, he wrote an enormous amount of articles and pamphlets about Germany from 1929 onwards, not only analyzing the course of events, but presenting a strategy to change the course of events, to stop the fascists and to go forward for socialist change of Germany. So his articles were not academic articles. They were political interventions, warnings, battle plans, appeals to the German working class to take action. Trotsky at the time was the leader of the left opposition within the Communist International against the Stalinist degeneration of the Russian Revolution, against the development of bureaucratic power in Soviet Russia itself, and against a wrong course, which was the consequence of that Stalinist degeneration in the communist parties all over the world. So his attitude naturally at the time was to try to influence the policy of the communist party of Germany. And he appealed to communist workers to change the line of the party. But this was based obviously on his analysis of fascism and his analysis of fascism as a special form of reaction. He understood that a fascist dictatorship would have much severe consequences for the German working class and for the course of world events than other dictatorial regimes, like the semi-dictatorial regimes which were put into power in Germany from 1930 onwards, before Hitler took power in 1933. Trotsky saw the Nazis in a way as an independent movement. It, it developed as a political movement independently which could arise because of the effects of the deep crisis of capitalism, especially on the middle layers, the middle class in society. I don't want to give many quotations in this podcast, but one I want to give now, because I think it summarizes very well the basis on which Nazism could develop a mass base amongst the petty bourgeois, the middle class in society. Trotsky wrote in, I think in 1929, the chaotic post-war years hit the craftsmen, shopkeepers and office workers no less than the working class. The agricultural crisis devastated the farmers. In the heated atmosphere created by the war, defeat, reparations, inflation, the occupation of the rural crisis, poverty and bitterness, the middle class layers rose up against all old parties which had betrayed them. The deep frustrations of the small property owners who could not come out of their bankruptcy demanded the restoration of order with an iron fist. Here he describes the consciousness of the middle class, which was hit by the economic crisis already in the early 20s, but then after the Great Depression started in 1929, especially. And these layers, because of the wrong policies of the Social Democratic Party and the Communist Party, they didn't see the workers' movement and socialism as a way forward. And then they moved over to the Nazis because Hitler promised, if you like, to defend the German middle class against the looming threat to their property coming from two sides in their point of view. On the one hand, against the big corporations who swallow up small businesses, 
and then against the socialist revolution, against Bolshevism, which wants to bring the economy into common ownership. And this really was the basis for the rise of the fascist movement, which was first and foremost a movement of terror against the workers' movement and one of pogroms against the Jewish population. And anti-Semitism, in a way, was the ideological glue which held the Nazis together. They made the Jews a scapegoat for everything which was running bad in society. And on that basis, they were able to build a terrorist movement. They were able to mobilize white layers and organize them in the SA and SS. Having said that, I think one thing is also important, which is that fascism was unable to sink deep roots within the working class. There were elections even after Hitler took power in 1933, in spring 1933, to the factory committees in the factories in Germany. And the National Socialist Factory Organization, it was called NSBO, was only able to achieve one-fourth of the votes, which showed that the working class was not supporting the fascists. Now, at the time, capitalism was clearly reaching impasse. The Great Depression meant great suffering. And German capitalism was in need for new markets, for new spheres of influence, for new spheres to exploit. And in that way, it can be said that fascism develops as an independent movement. But it can really only take power if it gets the support of the capitalist class. And in that sense, it is not independent from the capitalist class. They pretend to be anti-capitalist, but in reality, they defend the existing property relations, the private property of the owners of factories, banks, corporations. And as I said, it was only possible for the Nazis then to take power because in late 1932, early 1933, the German capitalists decided to bring Hitler to power. And it should not be forgotten that Hitler never received an overall majority in elections. His dictatorship was legally voted upon. It was, from a formal point of view, a legal dictatorship voted for by the so-called democratic capitalist parties in the German parliament in spring 1933. And by this, the capitalists took a certain risk to lose control over their own state apparatus, which happened in the end. But they did that because they felt they had to inflict a real defeat on the workers' movement. They feared a growing communist movement, they feared socialist revolution, and they knew that they had to smash the workers' movement in order to prepare the war, which from their point of view was a necessity for their capitalist interests. And it needed a movement like the Nazis, a mass movement, to really smash the workers' movement, to atomize it and hold it down for a longer period. And that was really what Trotsky understood, that the fascist movement has a different character and can unleash a much more severe defeat on the working class, atomize the working class for a longer period. And that was a reason why he explained that the struggle against fascism had to be the top priority, if you like, for the workers' movement at the time. So fascism, as you said, is a special form of reaction. And by reaction, we mean a movement by the right, by the establishment against putative revolutionary forces against the workers' movement, and there were big revolutionary forces in Germany at that time and in Italy beforehand when fascism conquered Italy and in Spain when revolutionary forces were subsequently defeated there. So there was a revolutionary threat to capitalism in each of those countries and fascism was a response to that by the capitalists. But what does this mean for today's right-wing forces and the tasks which the workers' movement has now in fighting? In a way, first of all, it means that I would say forces like Trump or the German alternative for Germany are right-wing populist phenomena, and they are not fascist. 
And I'm not saying that to say they are not dangerous. They are very bad and they are dangerous. They are a threat to the rights of working class people. They are a threat especially to migrants, the rights of migrants. But they cannot smash the working class as Hitler did in the 1930s. And from this there flow some political consequences. For example, in the upcoming US elections, many people say the only way forward is now to vote for Joe Biden to stop Trump because Trump is such a terrible, even fascist threat. I wouldn't agree with that because the need for the US working class is really to develop an independent voice and an independent political representation and support for the capitalist Democratic Party is a dead end. Now, obviously, there are fascist groups operating today, which I would characterize not only on the basis of their ideology, but also by the fact that they try to inflict terror on migrants and the left. And we have a lot of experience with that in Germany over the last couple of years. For example, we had the National Socialist Underground, as it called himself, killing, I think, nine migrants over a period of some years. And now in the last months, it has been revealed that within the state forces in Germany, within the police forces, within the military forces, there are a number of far-right networks collecting weapons, organizing, in a way preparing for what they see as the day X. And obviously these groups have to be combated. I also think they have to be confronted physically. We cannot let them just operate, but they have to be confronted by mass mobilizations, not by small, individual, anarchistic-like actions. But they are a small minority today, and they have no prospect to become a mass force like the Nazis did in the 1930s. Why is that? Well, I think that is for several reasons. I think one is sociologically. The mass base for the Nazis were the petty bourgeoisie, the middle class layers, as I have explained before. They do not exist in the same way as they did. The vast majority of people who are working are working class people, wage earners. And they have different interests. They have no small property to defend. And they make, when they get into struggle, into trade union struggle for better wages or working conditions, they make collective experiences which, if you like, pushes them away from the fascist and far-right or right-wing populist policies. I think there's also another reason, which is that, as you said, in the 30s there was the threat of socialist revolution. We have to accept that this threat is not as acute today because of the weakness of revolutionary socialist forces. But also the capitalists have made an experience with the fascists in the sense that they gave away the political control over their own state. And I think that they will not go such a road light-mindedly again. And also, I think there is a much higher democratic consciousness amongst the working class, you know, and a certain sensibility, if you like, in that respect. But as I said, I think we have to make sure that these forces are fought against. I think we should stand for no platform policy towards them. They should be neglected democratic rights. They only use democratic rights in an attempt to smash them later for the working class. But I think there's a difference between the struggle, if you like, against such Nazi groups or fascist groups, because in a way... These relatively small groups, the struggle against them can much more be won in the streets on the basis of serious mass mobilizations and, if you like, frustrating them by mobilizing greater numbers. I think that the right-wing populist parties, they have a different character. They are not organizations which first and foremost try to conquer the streets or inflict terror. They're trying to, if you like, shift the political landscape to the right. 
They can divert the discontent of a layer of the population, the discontent with the political establishment, in a nationalist and racist direction. They sometimes pretend to be parties speaking out for the ordinary people, but in reality, they are always pro-austerity. They are often like the alternative for Germany. They are made up of small or bigger capitalists, and they certainly have nothing in common with ordinary people. I think they can only be stopped and thrown back if a strong left-wing socialist workers' party is built, which can offer a real alternative to the pro-capitalist political establishment. And in reality, the lack of such a party and also the lack of a combative policy of the trade union leaderships created the conditions for the rise of the right-wing populist forces, just as much as the crisis of capitalism and the feeling of uncertainty amongst big layers created these conditions. So I think that Trotsky's analysis of fascism as a special form of reaction does have an impact when we discuss the strategy of how to fight the different far-right forces today. Now, the failure of the two biggest workers' parties in Germany, the Social Democrats and the Communists, to unite in the struggle against Hitler is widely seen as a major reason for the fascist victory. Trotsky always called for a united front, that's the term that we use. Have the correct lessons been drawn from that whole experience? Because the Communist International, which was under the control of Stalinism at this time, changed its policy in 1935. And after the Second World War, for example, in Germany, a united trade union movement was formed. And today there are very broad coalitions formed against the far right. So there are questions about what sort of alliance should be formed to combat fascists and the far right. Well, it was a tragedy. It is the tragedy, if you like, of the German workers' movement that the leaderships of the Social Democratic and Communist Party at the time did not understand what a victory of Hitler would mean. I mean, the Communist Party leadership had a policy which basically said, after Hitler, it's our turn. They didn't understand that a victory of Hitler would mean a decisive defeat for the German working class. The Communist Party at the time was in a very ultra-left period, the so-called third period. It labeled the Social Democrats as social fascists. And they said that the Nazis and Social Democrats are like twins. There's no fundamental difference because both defend capitalism. But also the Social Democrats labeled the communists as Coatsies or as red-painted fascists. And they hoped that the capitalist democracy and the capitalist state would withstand the fascists. And then in the end, they found themselves united in the Nazi concentration camps. Now, Trotsky called for a united front but for a united front of the workers' organizations to defend the working class and its organizations, to defend them physically, to stop the fascists. But also he saw a united front as a tactic for the Communist Party to reach the social democratic masses, which at the time still was the bigger of the two big workers' parties. So for Trotsky, the political independence of the participating organizations in the United Front was vital. Freedom of criticism, no joint political statement, no joint posters or anything like that. I think he used the sentence, march separately, strike together. And on that basis, Trotsky's assessment was that the Communist Party could have won a majority of the social democratic workers, proving that they are not only the best fighters against the Nazis, but also the only ones seriously fighting for socialist change. 
So Trotsky did not separate the struggle against fascism from the struggle for socialism. Workers' United Front, in his view, could have stopped the Nazis precisely because it would at the same time have opened a perspective for the struggle for socialism. As he said, the alternative at the time was socialism or fascism, and fascism meant Second World War. And this is the difference to the Popular Front policy, which the Communist International began then in the mid-30s, which led to a disaster, especially in Spain, in the victory for the fascists in the Spanish Civil War. And that was not a united front of the working class and its organizations to fight fascism and advance the struggle for socialism. This was an alliance with the capitalist class, or rather with those elements of the capitalist class, which had not yet gone over to support the fascists. And the aim of that alliance was not socialism or workers' power, It was to defend the idea to defend capitalist democracy against fascism. And that failed because, if you like, the workers wanted revolution and they made revolution, especially in Spain. It was a revolution underway and the capitalists wanted the fascists to stop that. And in its big majority, for example, in Spain, the capitalist class had moved over to support Franco, the fascist leader which in the end led to the defeat for the Popular Front government in Spain. So I think the lessons of the division of the German workers' movement as a reason for the victory of Hitler were drawn in a wrong way, and this is still the case today. Today we often see broad rainbow coalitions, as they are called in Germany, which are formed against the far right, and they are completely empty of politics. They are purely moralistic, because these coalitions consist of forces like the Social Democrats, like the Green Parties, sometimes even Conservatives, which are responsible for the social and political causes for the growth of racism and the far right. What do you mean by well, that? they are responsible, first of all, for social conditions, austerity policy, cuts in social services, etc., which one reason for people to look for alternatives. And if they don't see an alternative on the left, some of them look for an alternative on the right. The other reason is that racism is not only propagated by the far right or the right-wing populist forces. We see state racism as a systematic discrimination in Germany of non-Germans, of people with different nationality or different religion or the color of skin, a systematic discrimination which is propagated by the government parties and by the pro-capitalist media on which the far-right, right-wing populist forces then can build their even more open racist propaganda. So when, for example, Die Linke, the left party in Germany, forms an alliance with the Social Democrats and the Greens, or sometimes even with the Conservatives, against the far-right, These are parties which are responsible for state racism and cuts in social security systems, which are the reasons for the strengthening of the far right. So such alliances would never put forward a political alternative. They limit themselves to general, moralistic, anti-racist or anti-fascist statements. And with this, you might be able to reach those who are already convinced. But you will never be able to reach those layers of the working class and the middle class, which are in danger of falling into the trap of the racist propaganda of the far right, because they are frustrated by the political establishment, because they are victims of austerity and so on. So therefore, the CWI thinks that such a policy is wrong. We call for united front work of left-wing organizations, 
workers' organizations, trade unions, left-wing migrants' associations, which should fight the far right, but which should also express and explain what the root causes for racism and fascism are, which should mobilize the working class against the right, but also mobilize them for their own class interests. So just to summarize then the different tactics which were tested in history, many of which were found to be lacking. You had, first of all, from the communist international under Stalinism, a kind of red front, this sectarian ultra-left approach to other mass workers' organisations that only the communist parties, the main revolutionary forces, could go ahead, that they would go it alone. And as a result, there was division in the workers' movement and the mass of the working class was not won over to revolutionary ideas. And that isolation and separation allowed the fascists to smash that movement up. Having burnt their fingers on that, the Stalinists then swung to the opposite side and formed a coalition so broad it actually included a section of the capitalists as well, who have completely opposite interests to the revolutionary workers. You mentioned Spain, and of course there were key moments during the Spanish Civil War when sections of the capitalists surrendered entire cities even to the fascists, having been allied with the workers beforehand, because they understood that the workers wanted to take over their factories, their mines and so on, Whereas while they didn't like the fascists, at least the fascists would let them keep their big business property. So that didn't work. Trotsky instead proposed a united front, as opposed to the ultra-left sectarian approach and the cross-class popular front approach, which brings together all the working class organisations and demonstrates in practice the superiority of the revolutionaries' ideas, policies and methods to those other workers who are fighting alongside them. Is that right? Well, absolutely. I absolutely agree with the way you summarized it. I think there are maybe two things which can be added, because if you discuss with people who would uh, support the policy of the Communist Party before Hitler took power, there are not many left who do that. But they would say, well, look, the Communist Party called for united fronts. And on paper they did. But what they did was to call for a united front, if you like, from below. They asked or they demanded from social democratic workers to first break with their social democratic leaders and then join a united front under the communist leadership. Now that wouldn't be a united front. And Trotsky understood that Nazism, fascism, also was a threat for the social democratic organizations. And he tried to explain that to the social democratic leaders. And in a way he called for a united front from top and below. He said the communist party has to make serious honest offers to the social democratic leadership. If the social democratic leadership rejects these offers, social democratic workers will understand that their leadership is not defending their interests. If the social democratic leadership accepts the offers, then a united front can be built. And in the course of that united front, the Communist Party can convince social democratic workers in the course of fighting together of a communist perspective. And also, I think what has to be said is that in a way, the popular front policy which the Stalinists developed later, was not only an attempt to correct their mistakes. It was also based, and it was mainly based, on the narrow interests of the bureaucratic elite which ruled Soviet Russia, which at the time did not have an interest in spreading the socialist revolution. They actually feared that, because the socialist revolution in Spain which would have been based on workers' committees and workers' democracy, could have questioned their dictatorial power in Russia. 
And what they wanted is they wanted to appease the capitalist democracies, if you like, in order to form a bloc with the capitalists against Hitler. In the end, that didn't work. And then Stalin did a bloc with Hitler for a while, showing his absolutely unprincipled politics. But it was really based on the narrow interests of the Soviet bureaucracy. So why is there a connection between anti-capitalism and anti-fascism? Because certainly there are forces on the left in all countries who would say, look, the main thing is we've just got to get rid of the fascists and anti-capitalism can wait until after that. They may themselves be anti-capitalists. But for example, in Britain, I remember one leader of another left organisation talking about fighting the far right over here. And he said, first we kill the rats and then we can clean out the sewer. But we wouldn't agree with that stages approach, would we? No, as you said, this is a stages approach, which gives the impression that you can have a period of capitalist democracy, which can be progressive, where the workers' movement can develop, where maybe the economy will still develop, and that you have to defend that first from fascism in order to fight for socialist change later. I think that is absolutely wrong because the threat of a rise of fascism is directly connected to the crisis and the inability of capitalism to play any progressive role in the modern era. And I think the connection between anti-capitalism and anti-fascism is pretty simple, because fascism is a product of capitalism. Fascist forces can grow because of the consequences of capitalist crisis. They use racism as an ideological weapon, to win support amongst a layer in the population. But racism is also a product of capitalism. As Malcolm X said, you can't have capitalism without racism. Historically, racist theories developed with the development of the capitalist society. But if you like politically, capitalism needs racism to divide the working class and to divert attention away from the real causes for social problems. Now, I think that every problem in the world has to be, you have to fight the root causes and not the symptoms. And if you want to fight the root causes and eliminate racism, fascism, you have to fight capitalism and you have to have a strategy to actually overcome capitalism, to bring down capitalism and create a new socialist society. So how would you say right-wing populism, racism right-wing nationalism and today's Nazis, neo-Nazis, can effectively be fought against? Many things obviously have to be done on different levels. I mean, we have to tell the truth. We have to also educate the people. We have to explain that it's not migrants who are responsible for unemployment, for austerity, for example. We have to explain that it is not Islam which is threatening the rights of women but that discrimination happens in this society because it is a class society. That is, for example, why in the last years, my organization, the CWI in Germany, we have produced many books, articles, leaflets on these questions, including, by the way, a collection of Trotsky's writings on the struggle against fascism. So we have to educate, we have to mobilize. We have to mobilize whenever the racists and fascists raise their head. They want to conquer the streets. They want to terrorize migrants and left-wing activists and trade unionists. We have to stop that on the basis of mass mobilizations. We have to stop that on the basis of mass mobilizations physically, if that is necessary. That, in my view, can include the need for self-defense organizations, self-defense committees of the workers' movement, of migrant communities, where the threat of the far right is very strong. And most of all, most importantly, we cannot rely on the capitalist state. We cannot rely on the capitalist police or the capitalist judiciary to stop the fascists. The state, in reality, is complicit with the fascists, with the right-wing populists, in many, many cases. 
And certainly the capitalist class and the capitalist state, they have no interest to smash the fascists. They might sometimes, when the fascists go too far, try to limit them, but they will never actually smash and eliminate them because for them, they are in a way something like auxiliary troops to fight the workers' movement and the left. But the solution in the fight against racism and the far right, in my view, is political. And only if we build a strong socialist workers' alternative, a mass workers' party with a socialist program, we can push the far right and racism back in the long run. Because ultimately, only a socialist change of society can eradicate these evils, racism, nationalism, fascism from the planet. Now, you mentioned there that the capitalist state sees these small fascist groups as auxiliaries, as organisations which can do some of the capitalist class's dirty work without the existing organisations of the capitalist state having to suffer the loss of legitimacy, perhaps, that they might otherwise do in fighting back, in strong division, beating up the left and so on. You also say that the capitalist state is therefore complicit with these fascist organisations in many cases, but at the same time have explained earlier that a kind of fascist state, particularly in the advanced capitalist countries, the wealthier capitalist countries, this is not really on the cards. However, we've seen authoritarianism rising, particularly in parts of Europe, but also we can point to Bolsonaro in Brazil, we can point to, as you have, Trump in the United States, and Trump, for example, has had police agencies in military uniforms, heavily armed, out on the streets, abducting protesters in parts of the United States. This can feel a little bit like a dictatorship. So what is the difference, therefore, if the capitalist state is using these authoritarian methods, what is practically the difference between that and fascism? Well, I think that, first of all, if you look even in the recent history into some countries, mainly in the neo-colonial world, you can see examples how the capitalist class uses fascist gangs as auxiliary troops. If you look, for example, what happened in Bolivia when Morales was ousted from his presidency, it was fascist gangs who took to the streets and fought the workers who were fighting against the coup. But that didn't lead to a fascist dictatorship. Now, a fascist dictatorship certainly would mean that workers' organizations would be illegalized. But even more, it would not only mean that they are formally banned, it would mean that a fascist movement, being a mass movement, can sink so deep roots into all spheres of society that a system of systematic terror can be organized, which, if we go back to the Hitler regime, obviously also meant that not only the top leaders, but the local leaders, activists of the Communist Party, social democracy, trade unions, were thrown into prison, into the concentration camps, and many of them were murdered. Now, obviously, Trump is a big threat to democratic rights, and there is a tendency in a number of countries for more authoritarian rule. But it is a qualitative difference if workers' organizations can still organize or if they cannot organize. So I think that is one example for practical difference. But it doesn't mean, and I want to stress that, to play down the danger of more authoritarian rules, of right-wing populist governments coming to power. There's no question about it that this has to be fought. Another historical example is the Pinochet coup in Chile when in the 1970s a socialist government had been elected and the workers were starting to reorganize society in a small way. This socialist government under Salvador Allende in Chile then faced overturn by a military coup 
led by General Pinochet. And that coup carried out this atomization, as you call it, of the workers' movement, this crushing of the workers' movement. And the leaders of the trade unions and the socialist organisations were imprisoned and killed, pushed out of helicopters in many cases to their deaths. But it did this without resting on a mass movement of the small proprietors and middle classes. It did this with the army. So what does that tell us about today? Well, first of all, I would say that the experience of Chile is a vindication of Trotsky's general analysis of the fight against fascism, and especially on what we have been talking about before, the wrong idea of a stages theory to achieve socialism. I mean, the problem was that Allende, as much of a probably very honest fighter as he was, he made the mistake to create a popular front government to try to form an alliance with what he considered the progressive parts of the Chilean capitalist class in order to make step-by-step social progress. It should not be forgotten that he even brought Pinochet into his government. He brought his own overthrower, if that's the right word in English, into the government. And it was wrong for the Chilean Popular Front government and the Socialist Party leadership not to arm the workers when they demanded arms to fight the military coup. I would say that there are no Chinese walls, in a way, between the different forms of reaction we are discussing. And obviously there can be, and there were in history, like in Chile, dictatorships, military dictatorships, not only in Chile, in Turkey and in other places, where fascistic methods, in a way, were used in the sense of terror against the workers' movement. And that means that we cannot wait in the struggle against other forms of reactions, because we might think that you know, a fascist form could be even worse. But I would also say that probably even in Chile, the atomization of the working class and of its organizations and the way the dictatorship could control the whole society did probably not go as far as a fascist dictatorship, which is based on a mass organization, can go. Because if you look at Germany, The mass movement meant that in every district, in every street, you had members of the Nazi organizations which were able to organize systematic control and systematic terror over the local population. And I doubt that this was possible for the Pinochet dictatorship. So then finally, the Stalinist regimes, you talk about the fascist regimes, having these mass organizations with members in every part of society, able to exercise this very detailed, thorough control of society, and so much more completely, and for a longer period, potentially, atomize, destroy, and hold down workers' organization. But on the face of it, isn't that the same as the Stalinist regimes? And yet we do not call the Stalinist regimes fascist. So what is the difference there? Well, the difference is the social and economic base of the societies which existed in Soviet Russia and then later in the Stalinist states in Eastern Europe or in China. It's no question that the methods which were used, especially by Stalin in the 1930s, mass terror against not only the real opposition, not only the real Trotskyists and other oppositionists who were fighting for workers' democracy in the Soviet Union, but real terror against 
anybody who could potentially be oppositionist or who could you know, develop its own way of thinking, if you like, in the Communist Party, that these methods were very common to fascist methods. That's no question about it. But as I try to explain, fascism is a form of capitalist reaction. Fascism is a form of capitalist rule when it comes to power. And the social base of Soviet Russia and the other Stalinist states was completely different. It was based on the Russian Revolution. It was based on abolishing capitalist property relations, big land ownership and so on and so forth. We had an economy which was based on state ownership and on planning. On the basis of a political rule of a bureaucracy, which meant no democracy, for the mass of the population, but it meant that the economic development which took place in these years was far greater, not in the interest of private profit, but actually the planned economies were able to develop society and the economy forward. And in that sense, from our point of view, or from the point of view of Leon Trotsky, it was the necessity to change the political superstructure in these countries, to bring down the Stalinist bureaucracy, to reinstate Workers' democracy, it means free elections to workers' councils, freedom for political parties and trade unions to organize, freedom of speech, etc. But it was not necessary to change the economic relations. And that is the difference. But from a superficial point of view, certainly in terms of the methods which were used, there were similarities between the two regimes, if you like. So what would you appeal to our listeners to do to join the struggle against the far right today? Well, the first thing is maybe speak out, you know, I mean, raise your voice, don't be quiet, speak out when you witness racism, speak out against the far right, speak out not only on the streets, but also whenever you are confronted with it in your workplace, in your neighborhood, try to discuss with your workmates, neighbors and friends, but on your own, you will have little effect. Get organized, get organized to be active together with others. But also don't just look at anti-racism and anti-fascism. The best fight against racism, the best fight against the fascists is the class struggle, is the struggle for socialist change. Strikes and demonstrations of workers, of workers of all colors of skin, of all nationalities, of all religions for their common interests, they are the best instrument in the struggle against racism because there those workers make the experience that they have common interests, that it's not the nationality or the color of skin which separates people in this society, but that is if you are a have or a have not, if you're a capitalist or a worker. That is the real division in this society. And through joint struggle for your own interests, working class people can understand that. And obviously, on that basis, we have to fight to build a mass socialist alternative in the form of socialist parties and workers' parties. And if the working class understands its common class interests, and if we build such mass forces, the far right will have no chance anymore. And that is what we have to propagate and organize and fight for. That is what the Committee for Workers International, the Socialist Party in England and Wales, Socialist Organization Solidarity in Germany is struggling for on a world scale, for the international unity of the working people and the youth and oppressed layers to overcome this unjust and discriminatory and exploitative capitalist system to build a future based on workers' democracy and socialist planning. So the best thing you can do to fight the far right, to fight racism, is become a socialist and join the CWI. And as always, if you like what you hear, then recommend us to your co-workers and friends, donate to help fund us, and if you agree, 
join the socialists. Now, this episode, like all the episodes we've run recently, is part of a series on Trotsky and Trotskyism, and it represents a chapter in a new book being produced by the CWI called Leon Trotsky, a revolutionary whose ideas couldn't be killed. Sasha's written the section on fascism and the fight against it, Trotsky's ideas there. You can pre-order that book at leftbooks.co.uk. Sasha, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you, James. It was a pleasure. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Sasha Stanichich and I'm James Ivans. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. The CWI is producing a new book on Leon Trotsky's life and ideas for the 80th anniversary of his assassination, which this podcast series is following. It's called Leon Trotsky, a revolutionary whose ideas couldn't be killed. You can pre-order it now at leftbooks.co.uk. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. To get in touch with Sozialistische Organisation Solidarität, SOL, the CWI in Germany, you can contact them at info at solidarität.info. So that's solidarität, S-O-L-I-D-A-R-I-T-A-E-T dot info. And if you live outside England and Wales or Germany and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers' International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.